Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm an elder here at North Shore Church. And this morning I'll be reading scripture and I have prayer for us. So let's get started with scripture. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb to prepare it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Dear God, you are worthy and deserving of all of our praises. Your name is above all others. Through you all things were created, and by your will they still exist. So we come to you, our creator, our sustainer, God, this morning with praise in our hearts. We honor you with our worship and song and now in prayer. Lord God, we ask for your help today as we worship you. Remove distractions from our minds. Let us focus only on you and make it clear your will for us. Lord, help Duncan to teach your word to us. Let the words he speaks be life-changing for us. The message that you, God, have for us, written in your holy scripture and delivered by Duncan this morning. And we thank you, God, that we can even ask these things, that we can so openly and freely speak to our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus, that through him we have forgiveness of sins and a relationship with you. And it is in this, your son's precious name, Jesus, that we pray these things this morning. Amen.
Well, from the powerful text that Andy just read, you know that we are continuing to look at David's sin, sin against God and against many other people when he sinned in adultery with Bathsheba. We saw last week from 2 Samuel chapter 11 that all of this began seemingly innocent enough, this rapid spiral of David's sin, this plummet of David, when he refused to go out to war with his army as other kings did during a particular season of the year. It was the spring of the year. This morning is really the second part or the sequel to that story. Um, This is David's first and most important step back toward God after weeks, maybe even months, of temporary insanity as he's running away from God. After he's very painfully confronted with this sin, David does, we know, genuinely repent. And the content of his repentance is Psalm 51, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next week. Tragically, that was not the end of the matter because, as we know, as we see, David's sin resulted in a series of painful consequences that really continue to play out until he dies and even after he dies. When we read or we teach the Bible, there are a lot of ways that we can be built up by the truth of Scripture, especially in these stories. But in the case of our story for this morning, we could major on how wise, sensitive, and courageous that Nathan is in confronting David, and he is all those things. We could put our focus on the massive humbling that David experienced in repentance and how sincere his repentance ended up being or what he experienced in all of that. But those approaches place the main focus on the characters in the story. And as we often say, the Holy Spirit-inspired authors of Scripture don't write these stories as character studies of David or Nathan or anybody else. Neither are these stories written to teach us moral or spiritual lessons. Sadly, that's often the way they're taught. That's not the intent of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired his biblical authors to reveal God to us. The Bible is a book about God fundamentally. So God is the hero of this and every other story of the Bible, not a human prophet or a king. That means that we're getting close to the intention of the author, who ultimately is the Holy Spirit, as he inspired the authors to write these things, when we look for ways that the author or the story reveals God to us. And because this is a story about God responding to sin, and the main way that God always responds to the sin of his people is fundamentally through grace, that's what we most clearly see about God revealed in this story about David's sin and God's response to it. So specifically in these verses, we're going to look at four expressions of God's grace. The first expression of God's grace is seen in this very first sentence in verse 1, and that is, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. The first expression of God's grace seen here is God's grace in confronting David's sin. God's grace in confronting David said, now we may not think about this painful confrontation between Nathan and David as an expression of God's grace, but that is precisely the way it is. And David, this day, will tell you, I'm sure glad of God's grace in that situation. 
This is because for a believer, and we see that in David's life here, when we have unrepentant sin in our lives that isn't confronted, isn't revealed, it's something we're running from. We know it's there. We've walked away. We're pretending as if it doesn't exist, okay? This is not the day-to-day sins that we confess and that we repent of. This is the the, the sins that are significant that we just don't want to deal with because there's consequences there and we're going to have to pay them and we don't want to pay them and so we just pretend as if it's not there. Well, those kinds of sins are like, for the believer, a serious wound in our flesh where there's a terrible infection that has set in. To the soul of a believer, unrepentant sin like that, like what David is harboring here, is like a bacteria-ridden, rotting disease, and it stinks, and it festers, and it unleashes toxins into the life of the believer. And if that spiritual wound isn't discovered and cleansed, The consistent warning of the scripture is that it can literally kill the soul of someone who has professed Christ. Ultimately, in a genuine believer, he will repent of this or she will repent of this. At the very least, it will greatly weaken the believer spiritually and it's going to make him or her miserable until it's exposed and cleansed. For those of you who have had a physical wound that has become seriously infected, whether it's an ingrown toenail or something worse, you know how dreadfully painful that can be when you first start to treat it. But it has to be done if the infection is not to spread and eventually take over. Well, on a spiritual level, this process of cleansing David's sin-infested soul is what God, through the prophet Nathan, is doing when he exposes David's sin to the light of truth. This extended, and it's a withering rebuke from Nathan, must have been excruciatingly painful to David at that moment, but especially later on as he thought about it, because no one likes to have the rottenness of their hidden unrepentance sin brought to light. But in truth, this was great grace on God's part to do this for, for David. Though he would indeed bear the painful consequences of his sin for many years, the life that David lived after he repented was without doubt immeasurably better than it would have been had he continued to allow this sin to fester and poison his soul. We know that's true from David's own experience that he records in Psalm 32 because he testifies to what it's like for a believer to have unrepentant sin lying unconfronted in their soul. This is exactly what he's describing in verses 3 and 4. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted. That word means decay, so my metaphor is literally biblical here. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is a person who's miserable. Now, scholars don't agree whether or not this was written specifically to the situation with Bathsheba. Some say it was, some say it wasn't. Some say it's just a generic thing. It doesn't matter. Whatever the case, as many of us could also attest, this surely describes the experience of a believer living in rebellion against God in ongoing, unrepentant sin. When we're in this place where David was before Nathan confronted him, there is a constant inward 
groaning under the heavy hand of God on us and our deep guilt and a sense of shame, a sense of condemnation, they just drain away all of our energies. People who can live long in unrepentant sin without that kind of misery, misery, I don't give them a whole lot of credit for being a believer because the pain, this pain, is part of what the presence of the Holy Spirit brings into a person's life who's living in unrepentant sin. So if you don't have that pain, I would question whether you have the Spirit. However, again, for the believer, as horribly painful as that confrontation or revelation of our sin is, it's surely much more preferable than lying around with unrepentant sin, sucking the life out of us. In the case of David's sin, as we've seen before with him and other people from God, is God initiates initiates this process. He begins it. Okay, This was obviously not done on David's initiative, and it's not done when it's us either, on our initiative. David has been running away from God. He's trying to live his life as if everything is just fine. But God loved him, and he loves any genuine believer far too much to allow us to continue to live in this kind of charade indefinitely. The misery of conviction and shame, genuine believers fear when we're harboring unrepentant sin, is God's goodness to us. It doesn't feel like it, but it is God's goodness to us. Because it's only when we come clean that then we can know the peace and joy of the Lord as our strength. We can find release and we can have renewed spiritual strength. A second expression of God's grace to David is kind of woven throughout most of this story, and that is God's grace in causing David to see the truth about his sin. That's different than the first point. Uh, Though the exposure of our sin is necessary, we just saw that, it's not enough for us to just have our unrepentant sin revealed. We must also be awakened out of our spiritual coma to see the truth about it and what it's doing to us. Jesus tells us that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And in John 16, 8, he says this about the Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict us the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Convict does not just mean expose. Convict is exposed, but also something deeper. It's helping us to see what that sin is and what it does to our relationship with God. Part of the ministry of conviction is to speak the truth to believers about our unrepentance in in order for us to become blood earnest about getting rid of it. If the way we see our sin is simply a mistake or it's a bad judgment, that does not require humbling ourselves in painful confession and repentance. And our sinful, self-deceiving flesh will always seek to downplay or diminish the seriousness of our sin. That's what the flesh does. Without this convicting ministry of the Spirit, we're either going to fail to see our sin at all when it's unrepentant, or we're going to greatly diminish its severity and the horror it brings to God, and then put off repenting of it, because it's just not that big a deal. The Spirit of God, however, knows just how to communicate our sin to us so that we will be able to see it the way God sees it. David's sin is on two levels. First, and most superficially, David's sin is on a human level against the people that he hurt. But second, and far more importantly, his sin is against God and how he grieved 
him. That's why in Psalm 51, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This chapter helps us to see how God calls David through his spirit-anointed prophet to receive God's perspective on both of those levels of sin against humanity and against God. God causes David to see his perspective on his sin by the use of this brilliant little parable. The prophet Nathan tells about a rich and powerful sheep herder, he had flocks and herds, how he exploits a poor man with his one much-loved lamb. He says, beginning in verse 2, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. It's really important for us to see that one of the purposes of this parable, and we know this because of the way that it's told, the details in it, one of the purposes is so that we see that God doesn't reveal David's sin simply to notify him that he's in sin, okay? He could have done that simply by going to David and citing Mosaic laws, That would be number seven against adultery and number six against murder, David. He doesn't do that. God is working here through Nathan, through this story, to cause David to see and feel the abject evil of his unrepentant sin. And, of course, he does that by relating this story to him, purposely designed to trigger a strong emotional response in David against the sins of betrayal and the exploitation of the weak by the strong. Nathan does that by telling the story that's specifically targeted to David, a former shepherd boy. Doubtless, David had formed strong attachments to lambs before, and he knew firsthand what it was to love a sheep as a pet, which is what this animal became, like a daughter even. Notice that Nathan includes these intimate details about his family's pet. He would lie in the arms of this poor man. He would eat his food. He would drink from his cup. God wants David to feel the kind of love that Uriah had for Bathsheba, which his sin with her brutally trampled on. God also uses the details of this parable to powerfully convey the incredible selfishness of a rich man who takes the man's one treasured sheep when he could have easily offered this traveler one of the many nameless, faceless lambs from his own herd or flocks. Again, God's goal here is not for David to cognitively understand his sin. He wants him to deeply and emotionally connect with the great wickedness of it. He does this by including all of these tender details about the poor man's beloved relationship with this wonderful you. But he also does this by using a word that we may miss the power of, and that's this word, prepare. For those of you who didn't grow up on a farm, for those of you who don't know much about an agrarian society, prepare will kind of go in one ear and out the other. 
But for people in that culture, and especially for David, who's a former shepherd boy who knew all about what it was to prepare a sheep, this would conjure up a very powerful picture because what this man did, this rich man, killed this man's sheep, he bled his sheep, he skinned his sheep, he gutted his sheep, and he butchered this man's beloved pet, and David would have seen all of that in his mind's eye because he'd seen it a thousand times. Again, Nathan does this to incite appropriately indignant rage from David because he's not seeing it at all. In our world, many would accuse God of being emotionally manipulative of David because he sneaks up to him. He ambushes him with this emotionally charged parable. This is the point completely. The point is that in his grace, God is using a story that he knew would cause David as much as possible to feel the evil of what he'd done to Uriah in sleeping with his one beloved wife when he could have slept with so many of his own women. He also wanted David to know as much as possible the rage and hatred for sin that God experienced when he witnessed his king so cruelly exploit his subjects. The Holy Spirit succeeds dramatically in causing David to respond exactly as God intends. He explodes with indignancy at this callous response, and he says, the man who has done this deserves to die. Okay, David knew that the penalty in Mosaic law against sheep stealing was not death. It was to pay back the injured party fourfold. But David is not thinking only in legal terms here. He's feeling something like the emotional repugnancy that God feels toward his sin. It's strategically important that Nathan doesn't tell David that this story is about him from the very beginning. If he'd done that, David's self-defense mechanisms would have kicked in and worked to blunt his sense of guilt. No, he tells this story from another unknown man for whom David would be able to feel full and unfiltered rage. After David had experienced this profound anger and sense of revulsion, then and only then does Nathan then turn it back on David and say, you are the man. Again, it's important for us to know that the emotionally explosive way that God chooses to reveal David's sin to him tells us that God has no interest in David discovering his sin through a gradual analytical process. No, he orchestrates this in such a way so that this sense of deep moral insult will slam David in the face. And this is grace. This is God's grace. He doesn't want this to be a gentle process. Grace does not equal gentle, okay? This is grace. He is seeking to awaken David from his sinful stupor, and a gradual analytical process would never do that. Likewise, when we are in ongoing unrepentant sin that our hearts have become hardened to, God must violently defibrillate us back to spiritual health. This is really important for us to understand. In his grace, he knows that we need to be violently awakened to the horror of what we've been doing. He wants to snap our heads back and force us to see what our sin is doing. And this is not for the purpose of condemning us. 
Okay? It's so we can feel what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, godly grief, which he says is necessary for repentance. As absolutely agonizing as it must have been for David to have experienced this instant, full-on revelation of the horror of his sin that he'd been pushing away, make no mistake, this is all grace. This is all grace to David. Another way the Lord causes David to see how he perceived his sin against him is seen in how God expresses this outside the parable, because he also talks about it outside the parable. In verse 9, he says that David in his sin despised the word of the Lord. In the next verse, it says that in his sin he has despised me. So despising the word of the Lord is equated to despising God. That's very important for us to notice. Finally, in verse 14, he says to David, By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, Yahweh. Notice in each case that God wants David to know his sin was an act of personal betrayal against God. David was not simply in violation of a commandment. He was not misbehaving. He wasn't violating a legal norm. No, he's spitting in the face of God. The words translated despise and scorn to describe what David had personally done to God, to the word of the Lord, and to the Lord, those words could hardly be more strong. What they communicate is that through his sin, David was literally looking down on God in contempt and disgust. That's what he says. God reveals to David what his sin had blinded him to, and that is just how deeply rebellious David had become against God. Because unrepentant sin has such a powerful blinding impact on us, it's so important for God to blow away the fog of our own self-deception and cause us to see our sin the way he sees it. God wants David to see that his sin was not fundamentally a personal betrayal of Uriah. This was a personal betrayal of the Lord who had done so much for him. And that's the whole point of verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more." So why is it that the very first thing that God says to David through Nathan after telling him, you are the man, why is it that the very first thing he says is to list off the blessings that he given to David? You made him king. You protected him from Saul. You gave him Saul's place. You gave him Saul's wives. You gave him authority rule over the houses of Israel and Judah. So why does God begin his rebuke of David with this litany of his blessings to him? And it's because God wants David to know in his heart that his sin was not just a violation of the law, it's an arrogant display of personal betrayal and ingratitude toward a God who had shown him such amazing love. Just like our sin is against God. God didn't say all this to grind David's face into the fact that he'd been a jerk, okay? In causing David to see his sin for what it was, this is an expression of God's grace because we can't repent of a sin unless we're in agreement with God about what it is. The logic of that is inescapable. You can't get free of a sin unless you're in agreement with God about what that sin is. 
God wants David to see just who it is that he had scorned and that he had despised. This is the God who had given him unequaled blessings. It is this God in whose face David had been spitting. Again, God is doing what he needs to do to a person whose heart has been so calloused and desensitized by weeks of acting like nothing is wrong. There's nothing to see here. God is planting dynamite in David's soul to blast him out of his self-induced spiritual coma, and that's grace. That is absolute grace. The third expression of God's grace here is God's grace in his proportionate response to David's sin. God's proportionate response to David's sin. One of the biblical principles of justice is translated by the phrase, the law of retaliation. It's found three times in the Old Testament and expressed by the phrase each time, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You've heard that. This is the idea that the punishment must be proportionate to the severity of the crime, okay? This is an expression of God's grace to the perpetrator because it limits the punishment for his sin. I'm not allowed if I'm angry at you to do whatever I want to you because I'm angry at you. I have limits that I can do. There are parameters on what can be done. If a man strikes you, it's grossly unjust for you to kill him and his family. God's grace limits his justice to be proportionate to the crime, and that truth is seen all over this narrative about David and his sin. For instance, David took Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Verse 11, God says through Nathan, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. You took Uriah's wife, now I'm taking your wife. We know this piece of divine justice was enacted when Nathan's son Absalom took David's concubines and he publicly defiled them. Verse 11 prophecy, prophesies this when Nathan says, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Now even though Absalom's sin is public, it's still proportional to David's because David's sin became a public national disgrace. Davidson was very much public once it became open. Everybody knew about this. In verse 9, Nathan says twice that David killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. The punishment announces, announced in verse 10 is commensurate with David's sin when God says, Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart your house. And we see this later fulfilled in David's life, don't we? Sadly, when Absalom tragically murders his brother Amnon for the rape of his sister Tamar, we see it again when Absalom attempts to violently overthrow David. And finally, we see it when Joab kills Absalom for his threat to David. But there's also proportionality in God's punishment of David in verse 14, when God promises David, the child who is born to you shall die. The adultery of David that caused so much pain to so many will result in pain to him and Bathsheba as God causes the fruit of their adultery, this baby, to die. But there's also a sense of God's grace and proportional justice related 
to the sexual nature of David's sin with Bathsheba. Do you pick up on that? Think about it. The future consequences of this sin include Absalom sleeping with his father's concubines. They include David's son Amnon raping his daughter Tamar, and later Adonijah laying claim to his deceased father's concubines. In God's proportionate justice, David will taste the bitter fruit of the sexual sins of others just as Uriah was forced to taste that from David's sexual sin with his wife. Proportionality, and it's an expression of God's grace. The greatest expression of God's grace to David is seen in God's grace in atoning for David's sin. After David confesses his sin in verse 13, Nathan says to him, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. Now, under Mosaic law, David's sin had more than earned him the death penalty. The fact that God does not personally exact that penalty on him or turn him over to Uriah's family for vengeance is pure grace. David deserved to lose his throne and die in disgrace for his multiple sins against God, against Uriah and Bathsheba, and against his nation. But the question is, how does God just put away David's sin? In Nahum 1.3 says, among other texts I could quote, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Well, there it is. Well, isn't that exactly what he does here? Clear the guilty when he puts away David's sin? Well, the answer, of course, is no. It's not at all that when you understand the whole message of the Bible as it relates to how God relates to the sins of his people. And Paul explains that in Romans chapter 3, 25. He's talking about Jesus, and he says, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sometimes we forget that none of the sins of God's Old Testament people had been justly punished. None of them. God's holiness required that all sins be punished in ways commensurate with his holy justice. And had he done that, it would have brought the immediate death sentence for all of his people who had sinned, who had the law. That obviously wasn't done, and that certainly wasn't done in David's case, when God, although he would allow David to taste a lot of painful consequences of his sin, didn't punish David as he deserved according to the law. Paul is saying that all of these sins of the Old Testament saints that had not been justly punished, for those sins, Jesus was put forward as a wrath-bearing sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus was punished in the place of all of these Old Testament people whose sins had been piling up before a holy God. That's an important reason Jesus went to the cross. Well, apply that to David's sin, and you see in a new way what an amazing display of God's grace because when God agreed to put away David's sin, he was at that moment and with his full awareness agreeing to have the punishment that all of David's sin deserved placed on his son and punished at Calvary. With a holy God, there is no indefinite putting away of sin. Someone has to be punished, and in the case of David and his sin, that somebody was Jesus Christ. David 
didn't know that at the time. But his sin would be punished on the son of David, Jesus. Of all the consequences that David's family members bore for his sin, it was David's distant son, Jesus, who would by far pay the most severe consequences. His father rained down the wrath that David deserved on his son, Jesus. That's grace. As we close, the goal for this morning has been to reveal from the Scriptures God's grace in the midst of David and our own unrepentant sin. And although that is the prevalent theme, we've also seen that this expression of God's grace in the context of unrepentant sin is very painful at times. And the reason is because God knows that all of our sin, and in particular unrepentant sin that we hang on to, is so incredibly destructive to his children. That's why it's his grace that motivates him to so powerfully confront us with the horror of it. He loves his children far too much not to awaken us to this truth about our sin. If you want to know just how destructive the power of sin is, you need to look no further than the communion table. How destructive is our sin? It's so hideously destructive that it took the Son of God perfect in all of his perfections. It took the one who radiates the very glory of God, who is the exact representation of his holy nature. Our sin took this Son of God, this Son of David, and it turned him into a bloodied mass and stuck him to a tree. That's how destructive our sin is. And so it's hard not to imagine why a loving God, if we had this destructive force living unrepentant in us and rotting us from the inside out, would take whatever measures necessary to rouse us from our sin-induced slumber and wake us up to the reality of the destructive power of sin. Perhaps for some of you, that's God's purpose for this message. Maybe you're living right at this moment with God's heavy hand upon you as you have kept your secret sin hidden. If so, let God open that wound and cleanse it with the blood of his son. Confess it. Perhaps there are some here today who are contemplating some life-altering sin, and God has used this time to blow the fog away so that you can see this temptation for what it is, and that is a monster that longs to steal and kill and destroy your soul. Or perhaps you're here today and you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus. And maybe for the first time you've seen the destructive power of sin in your own life. Know this, God in his grace warns you to come to him today for cleansing and forgiveness before that destructive power is unleashed in your life for all eternity. Come in faith to him today. Confess your need of him. Like David, turn from your sins and trust in Christ to pay the penalty your sins deserve. May God give us the grace to see the truth about our sin and give us grace to live in continual repentance before him for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father, whenever we talk about sin, we're swimming upstream because the world doesn't believe in it and it certainly doesn't believe it's any big deal. Just part of being human. And yet, God, your word is so sobering 
in what you tell us about sin, unrepentant sin in our lives. And Father, for those people here today who are living with unrepentant sin, something they may have done a long time ago and it hasn't gone away and they're still miserable about it. Father, I just pray that you would help them to know that misery's not gonna end. And so God, give them the grace to repent, to confess, to say, I am the man, I am the woman. And Father, for those here today that may be thinking, that are feeling temptation toward a life-altering sin, God, I pray that you would use this time today to just enable them to see it for what it is and to do what Paul tells us to do, flee, to run away like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. And Father, for people here today that don't know you, God, I pray that you would cause them by your Spirit to see more clearly than they ever have before why they need a Savior and that you would give them the grace to cry out to Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.